0: Bienvenidos a La Raza Chronicle. Welcome to Crónicas de la Raza. On today's program, we bring you a conversation with Michelle Cruz-Gonzalez about her book, Boy Rules, Tales of a Chicana and a Female Punk Band. We will also have an interview with Quantic, aka Will Holland, on his musical journey in Colombia, upcoming albums, vinyl digging, and his tropical elevation tour coming to the Bay Area. Stay tuned. No te lo pierdas. A hardcore show is maybe not the first place where you'd expect to see a Chicana woman on stage. But the outsider lyrics and aggressive sound can speak to folks who felt marginalized. Michelle Cruz Gonzalez is one of those people. This Chicana, raised in a small town of Tuolumne by her single mom, gravitated to the in-your-face aesthetics of hardcore punk. She played drums for the groundbreaking all-female band Spitboy from 1990 to 1995. PM Press just published her memoir, The Spitboy Rule, Tales of a Chicana in a Female Punk Band. KPF's own Apex Express producer, Robin Takayama talked with Michelle about confronting hecklers at their live shows, how your heritage could be lost to a punk name, and the Bay Area punk scene in the mid 90s.
1: So I want to set the right context when we say the word punk. At this point, Everybody's heard of Green Day, even Rancid has made it onto mainstream radio, and there, there was the Warped Tour, so there's this kind of skater punk that's right. very well known. But in the early 90s, punk was more than a music genre. It was a movement.
2: Yeah.
1: So can you talk about some of those values in the punk movement, like DIY, and sort of what
3: opportunities people were making happen? Well, in the 90s, we didn't have access to the Internet. It wasn't widespread use of the Internet at all, like there is now. Maybe in the mid-90s, my friends and I started getting computers. But before that, if you wanted to make your own music, you made a demo, and then you passed out cassette tapes of it, for example. You really didn't really know what was going on in other states and other punk scenes in the immediate way that you can learn now. Um, You'd have to wait until you read about it in the scene report in Maximum Rock and Roll, for example, which only came out once a month, or from getting fanzines from people who are traveling in town from other states. You know, I grew up during Reagan, and um, that was a tough time for poor kids, for kids of color, especially for children who grew up on welfare. You know, our moms got called welfare queens, and the the government was trying to to completely dismantle the welfare program, food stamps, Medi Cal. And um I don't know, I just saw saw my mom struggle and grew up, you know, single with a single mom in a small town. I was one of the only few handful of Mexican families in town, and um, a lot. I got bullied a lot. And a lot of the times I got bullied by the adults in town, actually. I, I actually think I probably got just as much bullying from some of the teachers than I did from my peers. And um, that had a real profound effect on me. And a lot of the bullying had to do with race and class.
2: This is a public...
3: When The Clash came out with Combat Rock, you know, I started learning more about punk rock and really got attracted to music that was about something that kind of um, addressed some ideas or feelings of isolation that I was experiencing growing up. So that's how I gravitated to punk rock music back then. Mm-hmm.
1: And and can you describe the music, because of the popularity of this pop punk sound, um, what Attracted you to this more hardcore music, both as a listener
3: and as a drummer. I did move to the Bay Area when I was seventeen, and um, I went to a lot of shows at the Farm. And then, get, when the Farm broke, the Farm closed down, and Gilman Street opened up. I started going to um, all my m- most of my shows at, at Gilman Street, or you know, house parties too. <laughs> Actually, I went to um, a few shows, played a show with MDC at the um, the park across the street from the police station, just up the street from here. But um, the music that I was attracted to was the music that I was listening to. I was really into Subhumans. I was. I really liked Minor Threat. I really liked Dead Kennedys. I really liked bands like MDC that had a message and that played straight ahead hardcore.
2: And I
3: didn't, there weren't any women playing that kind of music at that time at all. I mean, if there were some... Women in bands early on, when I was in a band, they tended to be have like kind of a metal edge. And I didn't want to do metal, I wanted to do hardcore. To some people, yeah. they might sound the same, so what's the difference
1: between <laughs> hardcore and metal?
3: Well, metal has like guitar solos and kind of screechy guitars a lot of uh, scales, for example, in their guitar solos. Punk tends not to have any guitar solos, tends to just be really straightforward, and hardcore is not poppy, usually doesn't have melodies or harmonies, um, backup vocals like that. It's fast and it's abrasive and it's probably not something you would want to listen to when you were trying to relax, for example.
1: (laughs) It seems like having a woman-centric band has always been important for you. In fact, you wrote in your memoir, I sought out women with whom I could play music, women who wanted to start the band that we wanted to hear, a band that played as hard as men did but sounded like women. And I wanted to write songs about women's issues. So where did this feminism or women-centeredness come
3: from? Well, first of all, I'd actually like to address the part that says... Played as hard as men and sounded like women. Like I had to write it that way to get people to understand what I mean. But I I don't like that the measure is man. I tried to rewrite that line, you know, a couple of times to make it reflect what I wanted to say. But I didn't think it was going to come across what I wanted to if I didn't say it that way. Um, It's unfortunate that man is the measure. Like, they're the ones who are playing this and created this music. But hardcore tended to be, you know, mostly men back then were playing hardcore. So I guess that's how I mean it. The other part of your question? Well, I was just wondering where this feminism came from. My mom was abused by my father, and that was a story I knew growing up because um, since I didn't know my father ever growing up, you know, when you're young, you ask a lot of questions, and finally when I got old enough, my mom told me what happened. He was abusive. We left him eight months old because my mom is really, really pretty, you know, a fierce woman who doesn't put up with, with that for too long. And at the time, the statistic was one in four women was either raped or sexually assaulted. And that was true for Spitboy. So many of us had experienced either date rape, all-out rape, or some kind of sexual assault as a child. And we were writing songs from a very personal place, and because we were women in a predominantly male scene who had faced sexual violence or violence at the hands of men. We just felt if we were going to play hardcore. It was going to have a message, and that message was going to be a female message because that's probably what we would have wanted to hear, and no one was doing it. So we thought, well, we're we're going to have to be the ones. Can you give us some
1: examples of like some of your songs and the themes that you addressed in those songs? The themes that
3: they addressed were rape, domestic violence, um, the fear of being alone, walking on the streets at night, like having to like feel that fear every day. Because we were young and we we took public transportation a lot um, and you know walked and wanted to be independent women but felt scared a lot of the times. Um, We also wrote songs about um, capital punishment and some songs about relationships and personal sense of isolation. In Your Face Face is a song that's about using women's bodies to sell products and it's about that, that kind of exploitation. Um, of female bodies. Our very first song, seriously, is about um, this night that two guys from another band from Utah were staying at my house. They came to a house party, and they just totally sexually harassed me the whole night, made me feel really uncomfortable, and actually really threatened. Like made me feel really afraid to um, to like even go to sleep. And they were friends of my then boyfriend, and he had some art show so he couldn't come that night and then they came and because it wasn't there they just felt like they had this sense of entitlement to just harass me all night long and make me feel really um, afraid and so I wrote the song seriously about um, it's basically just about how like I'm not gonna let somebody you know push me around because I'm a woman
1: You're listening to La Raza Chronicles, and we're talking with Michelle Cruz Gonzalez, drummer for Spit Boy and author of The Spit Boy Rule, Tales of a Chicana in a Female Punk Band. So playing this aggressive music, mm-hmm. message-oriented music that's like pro-woman, mm-hmm. was provocative when you played live shows. Mm-hmm. And so in your memoir, you talk about some of those examples when idiots were heckling and that there were different ways that Spitboy
3: dealt with it so do you want to give us a little teaser we did get a lot of heckling and um, sometimes it was you know sort of innocuous things like shut up or what just play you know things like that and other times people would say really really nasty things to us um, really offensive and really embarrassing things frankly at one point we would lecture the crowd for being rude and that didn't really seem to go over very well, because who wants to be lectured in the middle of a punk show? I mean, let's be, let's be frank, right? Um, in the end, we wound up quipping back and making smart aleck remarks that the heckler wouldn't expect. One time, Karen found the perfect comeback when she told this guy what he needed to do was go to the library and read a book. And the crowd roared with laughter. And we, when we, right when we heard that, we were like, OK, we finally kind of found our way. Don't. Lecture, don't engage, surprise them.
1: Well, what I thought was really great in reading the memoir was the way that you three women and later the other Mm -hmm. band member gelled and supported each other. Mm -hmm. So you talk about a very egalitarian process in the writing of the Mm -hmm. music, not wanting to be owned by a label. So you were put out by lots of different labels Mm -hmm. um, and even having each other's back like during the heckling. How did that develop? Like, you, you called it "spit the Spitboy Rule, your mm-hmm. memoir. So was there a discussion separate from the music of the band about how you were going to
3: behave as band members together? No. You know, we never really had a discussion about it, which is interesting, because I think back on those days, and we were really young. I mean, some of the mistakes that we did make in the end, or over the years of being in a band... We made because we were young and we didn't have as much experience as, say, if we were out doing it now, right? But we made somehow a very grown-up decision to just support each other. And I think it felt like the right thing to do right away because as soon as we put our message out there, we realized that that was going to be a threat to people and that some people in the audience would turn on us. And if we didn't have each other's backs— it wouldn't it wouldn't last. So we had to have each other's back. So even if somebody responded to a comment in a way that one of us maybe wouldn't have responded to, we still supported that person and just tried to have our add our own comment if we wanted to smooth things over or to, to give another perspective, because it just felt really important for us to to be supportive of each other. And one thing we were very aware of is the stereotype of women that can't get along, the kind of women who don't like other women, they're catty, and they're jealous of each other all the time. And we did everything we could to avoid that. I think, a for- unfortunately, maybe perhaps a little bit of that came out with the Riot Girl stuff. Can you get, go into that a little bit more? Spitboy and Riot Girl started right around the same time. All of a sudden, we'd been together for six, nine months, and people all of a sudden started asking us if we were a Riot Girl band. Which we, was like a, a movement up in the Pacific Northwest. So it was women, they were forming bands, they were doing zines, it was feminist, female focused, everything that we were for, but they called themselves girls. Well, in the Bay Area in the 1990s, Feminists did not call themselves girls. Feminists called themselves women. Sometimes it was women with a Y. Sometimes it was women with an I. And right away, we recoiled from the, from the name Riot Girl because we were like, we're not girls. We're not going to be called girls. And we just felt like we didn't want to be part of that movement. It wasn't that we didn't want to be part of feminist movement. Like we, 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 we questioned or wondered in our own heads, are we making a mistake to distance ourselves from Riot Girl? Because it felt kind of bad, like why would we distance ourselves from this thing that is essentially what we're doing? But there was another reason, and the other reason was a lot of the Riot Girl bands, not all of them, but it's Bikini Kill probably in particular, and a couple others, their performance was very sexualized. And Spitboy really was not comfortable with that. Um, and it wasn't about sex, it wasn't about being prudish, it was just a, it was just a total different approach. And because the approaches were so different, we decided in the end to just to be upfront and finally say in interviews, no, we're not a riot girl band. And it, it kinda cost us a little bit. Um it it ruffled a lot of feathers. It made a lot of people angry. But I, I think we did the right thing in the end. I mean we know of course that there's all kinds of feminism and you could still be a feminist band in the nineties and not be a riot girl band.
1: Well, it's interesting that you talk about there's many different ways to be a feminist because I feel like um, the third wave feminism critique was about bringing in race and class. And really, that's sort of what you start alluding to in your memoir, that despite your bandmates having each other's backs— There are stories that you tell where race and class almost silences um, your other bandmates. It becomes very uncomfortable for them to talk about Mm -hmm. and also for you Mm -hmm. to talk about. And it's like unresolved, it almost seems like, at the end of each chapter. Mm -hmm. We're looking at a a 1995 split with Los Crudos. Mm -hmm. So there were like people of color in the punk scene. And then I also remember at Epicenter, there would be like A day that only queer folks were working at Mm -hmm. Epicenter. So there were Mm -hmm. some identity politics. But what was that? What was going on for
3: you? I think for Spitboy, when we initially started out, it was you know all feminism all day long. And that was our main focus. And I happened to be a woman of color. Some of it was a blind spot for Spitboy, the whole entire band. And the reason probably for the blind spot, well, there are a couple reasons. One is class. The other people in the band were upper-middle class, and I was from welfare. (laughs) So there was a very big class divide that, as we got older, seemed to get bigger. And we didn't know how to talk about it. We didn't really have words the way we do now. Occupy. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. then in the 90s, there was also—people tried very hard to be colorblind in the 90s. But that makes— people like me invisible to a certain extent. So it was this weird, it was, a, it was a really hard and weird, strange thing for me because all of this stuff was beneath the surface bubbling up in me in a way that I, I just didn't know how to deal with it. And I think at the very end of Spitboy, I didn't know how to talk about my feelings and to make myself heard in any way unless it was through anger and frustration. And that is alienating. And so I made a mistake, and I think the rest of the band had a blind spot to race and class issues. And the intersections were just bumping up against each other. Um, but there were some hard there were some hard times where I felt invisible or um, not understood, and, and some of that was my fault.
1: Can you give a specific example about that?
3: I often felt like I never fit in. Like being in the band was my way to, to be in the punk scene. Like if I was going to be in the punk scene, I had to be in a band because that was the only way for anyone to see me. But people weren't really seeing me because I wasn't really truly expressing or understanding how to express who I was because it was either you're a punk or you're – that's it. <laughs> Everything was so binary. You were either this or that. You couldn't be two things at once in the 90s. And I kind of bought into that. You know, if I'm going to have to be one weird thing, I don't think the world can handle both. So I'll just be punk rock. I'm not going to be this Chicana and have this identity, my background and my my family history. I'll just ignore all that. Well, And that seems so demonstrated with the punk name.
1: Yes. Right?
3: Like (laughs) your punk
1: name was Todd Spitboy. Right. Your last name was erased Mm -hmm. by your
3: band name, right? right? You know, that's how it was. You either were identified by your band. Your band name was your last name. Or the zine you did, for example. Or if you didn't have a band or a zine, what town you were from. Like there was that guy, Dave El Cerrito, for example. Right? Do <laughs> you remember him? You don't remember him? <laughs> okay, so well, so sometimes you also went by your town name as well. So yeah, there is a certain erasure of anybody's family heritage or background through the, the kind of like punk name system. I mean, you know, punk wasn't like trying to steal anyone's identity or anything, but there was a way that it did homogenize. Everybody, and that it made it a lot easier for my identity to just kind of fade away.
1: Well, I mean, I think what's so interesting for my experience mm-hmm. is. I would see folks at UC Santa Cruz wearing the Spitboy shirt right. with the logo. Right. And so when I finally got a record, you by 95, you were using your full name. And right. so I totally knew you were a woman of color. Right. I actually
3: was like empowered by seeing you there. and That was a conscious decision to, to use my full name. And we all decided to do it on this record. And I think that we were all realizing that we had fuller identities then. And I, in particular decided to use my name because I was just getting so tired of having such a fractured and schizophrenic identity. Um, You know, I would go to LA and visit my family and be like my Mexican self and then I'd come back to the Bay Area and be Todd for (laughs) Sipoy. It was definitely a way of coming out as a person of color in the scene. That was all on purpose.
1: Well, I guess to wrap, I just wonder what you um, take from your being in the band and if there are any lessons that you use from them in your teaching today. I mean, you, you teach at a community college. Mm-hmm. So um, are there lessons from them that you apply when you're working with young
3: people? Well, I think the main thing that I teach that is definitely – a staple from Spitboy days is to try to help young people see those who are marginalized and to also to think critically and to ask questions about everything, to not just blindly trust their boss or their government or even their teacher.
4: You're listening to La Raza Chronicles, Chronicas de la Raza. I'm Brenda Yescas, and right now I'm on the phone with Quantic on KPFA 94.1 FM. Quantic, aka Will Holland, associated with the True Thoughts label out of Brighton, England, he's a multi instrumentalist, producer, DJ, and he's putting on a great tour coming up Tropical Elevation Tour. I'm on the phone with him, obviously, and have a chance to Ask him some questions, and I'm really excited to do this. So, hey, Will, how's it going?
5: Hey, Bruno, you're very well, thank you. How are you doing?
4: Good, good. So, how's the tour going so far?
5: It's been going really well. We we uh, we are halfway through the U.S. leg, so we just finished in uh, Minneapolis. We had a sh- we got a short break in New York, where we get to come home and wash clothes and water plants and stuff like that. They kiss our children, and uh, and then we're off again to the West Coast, starting in Arizona, and going right through to Alberta, Canada.
4: So for our audiences that's never heard from you before, can you tell us a little bit about what your music sounds like?
5: Yeah, sure. Um, you know, there's a, well, there's a lot of different styles involved, because I've been making music for a while, and we, particularly on this tour, we're playing stuff from way back, and then recent Quantic stuff as well. There's a lot of rhythm. We work a lot with rhythm. There's a lot of the kind of afro colombian element there rhythmically there's also a work with Latin music, some salsa and cumbia, and also reggae and uh, there's a lot of electronic styles too, like house and uh you know sort of instrumental hip hop as well over the years' there's been that kind of style too so there's like uh, there's a lot of different kind of things involved, but generally it's the the idea is kind of combining like folkloric sounds with with you know live fusing them with live instrumentation and electronic beats and you know i mean that's what i've been doing in the studio for years and and on stage we tried to represent that and there's also a big soul element too because i've I've put out a lot of funk and soul records over the years
4: yeah so a little bit of everything there it's very diverse
2: yeah Yeah.
4: so i know you've been living in colombia for a while so you basically immersed yourself in the music of colombia what started you there
5: yeah well i'm I'm Currently living in Brooklyn, I, I moved up from Columbia in, in uh, a couple of years ago, and I um, I went to Columbia. I just my friend invited me. I had a Columbia friend; he's based in New York, and he uh, his grandfather was still living there. And I just wanted to go down. I'd heard a lot about Cali, and my friend had been to Cali, so I ended up meeting him. There, we kind of just went and hung out, and you know, listened to good music, saw some great live bands, and you know look for some records and it's just like a really nice experience and i just got more and more into the kind of culture there and and i got more interested in learning the music as a musician you know spent a lot of time like playing music and like learning from people like how to play instruments and stuff like that so it was kind of cool to go down there it's like a whole other kind of ecosystem of instruments and sounds that you know, I just wasn't getting time, so, you know, that was 2006. I just kind of fell into that world, really, and, and stayed, <laughs> so, and obviously a lot of the music I was making as a producer and musician, the records I was putting out started to change too because I was recording them there with, with locals and working with, with Colombian music, you know?
4: Yeah, definitely. So, you played with um, a lot of greats from Colombian music, like Wilson Viveros and Michi Sarmiento. How was it to collaborate with them?
5: I mean, the, through the On the Tropical project, it's been a really, really nice experience because through that project, I, I got to not only meet all these people, but kind of like tour with them and kind of just became friends with these people. And I don't know, it's it, it's funny like looking back and you know when you're kind of staring into the back of a LP sleeve, looking at these old pictures from the fifties, or like Michi Samiento kind of as a teenager, sort of the clarinet, all these images, and then like to meet these people in their seventies and then record with them and and work with them and tour with them and end up being kind of a family with them. And it's, yeah, it's a great experience. I mean, I think the nice thing about my experience in Colombia is that I think there's something very real about Colombians. And I think in Latin America in general, I think if you, if you learn Spanish and you can get to the, to into a point of view where you can communicate with people, I think there's just a, there's a very, warm spirit, you know, in a lot of these countries and especially in in my experience in Colombia, I found that there's like a very people, when you make friends with people, you make friends with people for life, you know, so it's not like a a passing through thing. So for me, it was a very valuable experience, something that is like really added to my life in general.
4: Definitely, definitely. So the Onda Tropica album came out, what, like four years ago now, the volume one?
5: Yeah, yeah.
4: And um, I know that you guys crowdfunded the second one, Volume 2. Is there a different sound to Volume 2?
5: Yeah, so Volume 2, we finished mixing. Um, we're just uh, kind of in the final processes of putting together all the artwork and things like that. But uh, yeah, Volume 2 was a little different because the premise of Volume 1 was that it was a collaborative project between Mario Galliano, Frente Cumbiero, and myself. And the idea was Principally, it was funded by the British Council and the idea was to kind of have a collaborative record between us two. but we'd for a long time been chatting about trying to do something with a wider scope and involving these well, the greats of tropical music, you know, people like Michi Samiento and Alfredito Linares and musicians who were very present in Colombia but weren't necessarily playing to a young audience anymore, you know, they were kind of like they were still had very hip ideas and very forward thinking but somehow like the kind of industry had left them behind in some way i mean and i don't mean that in like they like they weren't so active i just mean like as far as um, being involved in you know going and playing in nightclubs and things like that and stuff so it, w- it was um through mario that i uh got involved with the first record and then uh the first record was very tropically focused we recorded in discos fuentes which is you know this is kind of sort of like the, the Abbey Road of Colombia in a way. like It's this very special recording studio where these certain productions and certain techniques kind of came out of. So it was very typified. That record was very typified by us being there and us recording in Medellin. So we were working with a lot of session musicians based in Medellin who played on these, you know, Los Colorados de Marual or on the Fucro record. or They were, you know, Mario Rincon, the original producer from Fuentes, was in the studio with us too, he has so much experience. So that was very the whole sound kinda of had this very marine tropical kind of experience. The second record and as we kind of highlighted this in the in the crowdfunding is like uh focused more on Caribe aspect of the Latin American sound. So there's a small island called Providence, uh Providencia, which is Colombian territory next to San Andres and Santa Catalina, it's a small island, and it's English-speaking, has um, sort of Anglo-Caribbean heritage, and yeah, that was the place we recorded the second record there in Bogotá, so it has a very different feel, because there's obviously a uh, different language involved, and it sort of a little bit straddles kind of this kind of Anglo-Caribbean world, and also sort of Spanish-Latin, American kind of sound as well.
4: That sounds great. When is it set to come out?
5: Mm, still working on a date. I think it's going to be end of the summer, possibly. Before that, we have another record coming out, which is another side project I have called um, The Flowering Inferno. Which is This will be the third record from that project. The last one was called Dog With a Rope, and uh, the next record is coming out this summer. So sort of a dub reggae side project I have called Flowering Inferno.
4: I know you're an avid record collector. This is a question that I've been wanting to know for a while. Could you tell us your top spots around the world where you like to dig and find treasures?
5: Well, you know, a lot of the time like when you're traveling, you know, you're passing through places a lot, and often you don't go back to these places, you know? So you kind of have to make the most of them when you're there. I would say, in my experience, the places that I've had the most fun looking for records have been Istanbul. I'd say that's a great city to look for music, partially because the culture there is so you know the cafe culture and the kind of arcades and the different kind of places you find these record shops you know they're like deep within these kind of very multi-layered malls or arcades where you kind of have to like kind of mill through lots of different side alleys to get to these places and that you know Istanbul's a really fun place to look for records also we enjoyed going to the north of Brazil I went to Belém and I was getting right into the calimbo kind of sound um this kind of tropical like Amazonian sort of guitar, Drum, kind of bass sound, and I was really into that. And city R, which is another rhythm from that. So um, that was really interesting because you know I'm a big fan of acai too. So that's where all the acai comes out on the boats and, and gets gets sold in the market. So that that was a really cool experience and interesting record. I mean, a lot of the time in, when you're looking for music in places like that, it's kind of unconventional, like the way you look for music because it's not like you're like. Oh I'll open the yellow pages and I'll go to the you know the record store. It's more like you meet a guy and he says there's this other guy who's a collector, and then you go to his house and he doesn't know that record that you're looking for, and then you kind of end up. But you end up having a meal with him and his family, and then you know that it just kind of it's more of a personal kind of thing with, when you're looking for records in, in smaller towns.
4: So, what kind of uh, musicians are you listening to at the moment?
5: Uh, currently I've been I was just down in Chile I uh, played with Chancho Vecicuito I've been getting into his sound more and more he's, he's a good friend and he's from uh, Buenos Aires a young producer makes really interesting kind of, kind of Andean kind of electronic vibes but it's not very slow like the kind of a kind of Reba Jara, kind of cumbia element to it as well and yeah it, it's interesting stuff I was also uh, playing down there with Nicola Cruz who's out of Ecuador and uh, he's just released a new record I I really like that record it's pretty special also and I'm just I think what else I mean a lot of the time I'm also buying old records too so I'm getting into records they were recorded in the 60s that might not be new technically but they're new to me
4: yeah I mean it's always good to go digging for records and finding Something that that you wouldn't normally listen to. I I like doing that, too, like just digging around and and finding something Then when you go back home, you're like, man, this is this is great.
5: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the thing is, is also like we are living in such a retrograde kind of uh, era of like pop culture where everything seems to be regurgitated or sort of revived. You know, a lot of the time we listen to things that like, you know, oh, it's a 60s kind of kitsch thing or like, oh, you know, there's so many songs on the radio now that you hear that kind of have like this 90s sound again. You know, they've gone back to almost this kind of 90s R&B thing. So one good thing about that is you start to realize that there's all this other music that is stylized in the same way that people are trying to copy now because that has a certain element. And you can delve back into those eras too and kind of pull out things that kind of sound fresh because... You know, there's so many other things that those times that maybe didn't make it or were too forward-thinking for the time, but that then now that we're reviving those sounds, they kind of they work and they almost sound fresh. You know, a good example is I feel like in the last year there's been a very been a preference for kind of getting into this synth kind of world where you know so you've got like a lot of African records that were recorded in the 80s that have this very prominent synth element and like synthesizer kind of sound, and I think you know. A while back that wasn't really understood or accepted that much or played out, but now it is because you know, we're kind of into this kind of rebirth of synth call and a lot of rock bands using synthesizers again. Yeah, I mean, it's just constantly evolving, I guess.
4: One of the last questions I wanted to ask you, I've seen you play with a few different configurations of your live set, such as you know Onda Tropica, and also just you on stage doing your, your DJing. What can we expect from this tour?
5: Well, this tour is cool because it's outside of a LP record release, so it's not something you know normally. Or a lot of the time, when you're on the road, you you're, you've just released a new record, and you and we've been releasing a lot of records, but this this tour just has, it's not linked to a record. So the cool thing about it is, like I actually had a chance to delve back into the older back catalog of, of Quantic. and a lot of the time, people come out to gigs and they. They really enjoy the music but they also they're like wow but, you know i got this song from 2004 you know when i was doing my my finals and and that was really cool for me or that was me and my girl we met through this song and And you miss that a lot of the time when you're playing these kind of tours where you you're uh promoting one record only so we've been delving back into the back catalog and trying to play some older songs also touring with a singer out of california on this tour a lovely singer called gemetta rose who's Released a lot of material and right and is fantastic soul singer and she recorded on a, a recent record of mine and she's been touring and that's been going really well so uh, there's a bit of everything we have got also the the Columbia sound there and some accordion songs and um, yeah it's gonna it's gonna be nice
4: yeah I mean I mean I'm excited to hear what you have to play on your new tour um, because I I mean I've I've been a great fan of yours for a long time and your albums from back in like early two thousands were all mostly electronic and soul, and I really like that, so are you going to play some of that too?
5: Yeah, for sure, for sure. I've been trying to, you know, the one great thing about, you know, I'm living in the United States now, and I've been living here for a couple of years, and there was one thing that, although living in Colombia was fantastic for, you know, making a lot of new music, and also managed to garner a Spanish-speaking audience and learn Spanish myself, and that was a really valuable experience, and I continued to make a lot of music in, for the sort of Spanish-speaking world. But then, in a way, like it was kind of like the Anglo element of the stuff I'd done before, the soul element, in a way was kind of neglected. I guess I also did a lot of records. It's a hard sell sometimes because people go, oh, you know, they want to tell this story that English guy moves to Colombia and the Raikuda effect, He, you know, there's a Buena Fista element and there's this he gets enamored by local musicians and he falls in love with Salsa and makes it or, you know, that kind of thing. And in actual fact, it was a lot more complicated than that. And we ended up making a couple of records with Alice Russell there, you know, so Alice coming out and and recording there. And uh, we also, you know, we did a Hip Hop and Cumbia's record where we did versions of Hip Hop and Cumbia. And then, you know, the On the Tropical record was a lot, you know, there's just, it was a lot more complicated. And I think the soul element became somehow a little bit neglected in that narrative and it's great to come back and be working in the states because i can work with with both i can do spanish-speaking music and and english so it's kind of cool sorry that was the long answer
4: (laughs) Uh, really excited about that actually i mean i i really want to hear what you have to do with this tour it seems like really eclectic and you're going to be playing a little bit of all your repertoire so that's that's really good Listen to Creation by Quantic. Can you tell us a little bit about that song?
5: Yeah, that's a song from the last record, um, which was the Western Transient. Um, it's a Quantic record featuring Jometa Rose on vocals, and uh, it's a sort of disco joint that we recorded for the record, and we, we're playing that live in our shows at Coindy.
4: to Coruva by Quantic. Can you tell us a little bit about that song?
5: Yeah, that song produced especially for the Tropical Elevation Tour and it's uh, currently free download on our SoundCloud page and uh, sort of like a burgeoning spring track, something to kind of shake off the, the cold and, you know, things are heating up at the moment. So suitable listening for springtime.
4: You've been listening to Quantic on KPFA 94.1 FM, La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. So can you tell us how the audience can stay
5: connected to your music? Yep, you can check out the Quantic Facebook page. It's uh, forward slash Quantic Music. Also the website, we've got all our dates up there, org, And, uh, you know, the normal Twitter and SoundCloud and kind of avenues and um
4: Hey, Quantic. So I know that you're going to be in the Bay Area. What dates are those?
5: Yeah, so it's April second, Saturday, at Mezzanine in San Francisco, and on Sunday, April third, at Freight and Salvage in Berkeley.
4: Great. Looking forward to seeing you, and I'm sure our audiences as well. We're really excited to have you on the show, and I hope the rest of your tour goes really well. Thank you.
0: And next, we're going to feature a song by Daime Arocena. This song is called Madres, and she'll be visiting us from Cuba this Sunday, April 3rd. Don't sleep on it. This is her only show in the Bay.
2: Chicken, me, Chicken, me, yeah, my, chicken, me, I You're
4: listening to La Raza Chronicles, Chronicas de la Raza. I'm Brenda Yescas and this is the calendar of Bay Area events and happenings for the week of Tuesday, March 29th through April 4th. For Friday, April 1st, Social Justice, Afro-Latin, Reggae, and Rock with Tanya Asili and Yvonne Fly Onakeme. Tanya is a Puerto Rican singer combining powerful vocals with energetic social justice fusion of various genres of music. Yvonne is a Nigerian performance activist, Poet, dancer, and mixed media visual artist. They will both be at Studio Grand in Oakland, 3234 Grand Avenue. Starts at 9:30 p.m. StudioGrandOakland.org. For Friday, April 1st, join the Chiapas Support Committee and the Global Women's Strike Collective in screening of a documentary film, "Gambalache: El Valor de Intercambiar," the courage to interchange, about a group of indigenous women in Chiapas, Mexico who have created a system of mutual aid and exchange in their community. The documentary is shot over five months of events and interviews about how their project works and the community it has created at the Omni Oakland Commons, 4799 Shattuck Avenue in Oakland, 7 p.m. For Saturday, April 2nd and Sunday, April 3rd, come listen to the Afro-Colombian sounds of music producer Quantic with his Tropical Elevation tour, bringing his eclectic mix of soul, Afrobeat, jazz, and more at the Mezzanine in San Francisco on Saturday starting at 9 p.m. mezzaninesf.com and on Sunday at the Freight and Salvage in Berkeley, 2020 Addison Street, freightandsalvage.org. For Saturday, April 2nd, Los Rumberos de Cali, a community dedicated to the preservation of Afro-Caribbean culture. The mission is to unite, reinforce, and promote Afro-Caribbean culture by inviting these unique elements of rhythm, song, and dance into everyday lives and culture at the Artillery AG, 2751 Mission Street, starts at 9 p.m. For Saturday, April 2nd, David Aguilar in concert. He is one of the most versatile, creative, and groundbreaking contemporary singer-songwriters to come out of Mexico's independent scene, blending contemporary acoustic tunes with complex lyrical experimentation at Studio Grand in Oakland at 8.30 p.m studiograndoakland.org. Also for Saturday, April 2nd, Rafael Manriquez Memorial Festival, and an exciting lineup of musicians will be sharing the stage to honor and celebrate the exquisite artistry and musical legacy of Rafael Manriquez. Originally from Chile, Rafael lived in the Bay Area for over 30 years and graced stages all over the United States with his beautiful voice and virtuoso guitar playing. This event will feature Francisco Villa and Patti Carmona direct from Chile, John Santos Quintet, Aline Vance, Banda Sin Nombre, and Manuel Manríquez at the Freight and Salvage in Berkeley. FreightandSalvage.org For Sunday, April 3rd, join La Rumba and Brownswood Records for a memorable evening of Cuban music and culture with Daime Arosena from Havana featuring local talent DJ Cecile and DJ Ladies at the New Parish, 1743 San Pablo Avenue in Oakland at 3 p.m com, And this has been a calendar of events, música y arte for the San Francisco Bay Area. To add your event to our list, email us at larazachronicles at kpfa.org. And for more information on these events or our show, visit us on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash larazachronicles. Feliz noches.
0: You've been listening to La Raza Chronicles, Cronicas de la Raza on KPFA Radio. You can listen to this program again or share it with friends by finding us on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash La Raza Chronicles. If you have any show ideas or events you think we should cover in our community calendar, email us at chronicles at kpfa.org. And if you want to stay up on news, make sure to follow us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash Chronicles. Muchas gracias por estar con nosotros y buenas noches
2: gog 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 gog